Who's the boy in this set? Yeah, I spent a summer there one time. I died of ennui. I died of ennui. Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker, a married couple and founding members of the Duluth band Low, have a pretty dry and self-deprecating sense of humor about the place they've called home since the early 90s. Then again, they have a pretty dry sense of humor about everything. But along with the four different bassists who've rounded out the band, Al and Mim's impact has been anything but modest. Their first album, I Could Live in Hope, came out in 1994, and a quarter century later, they've become one of the most beloved indie rock bands in the world. Their fan base is relatively small, but it's global, fervent, and star-studded. Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin covered two of their songs on his 2010 album Band of Joy, and Jeff Buckley was a huge fan. In addition to touring internationally, Lowe remained linchpins of the Duluth music scene. Lowe had been around for 10 years before we started. Dave Simonette, the lead singer of Bluegrass Stars Trampled by Turtles, speaks for a lot of Duluth artists when he describes Al and Mimi's status there. And they were, they still are extremely highly regarded in that town. They've just always been like the most creative force that I've known and kind of fearless in, in how they approach the music. You know, all of us little bands looked up to them and still do. And there are a lot of so-called little bands in Duluth. Considering the size of its population, its music scenes are surprisingly robust. I'm Andrea Swenson, and this is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. For this episode, we wanted to know about Al and Mims Duluth. So I headed upstate from Minneapolis-St. Paul to the northern end of Interstate 35 with our producer, Cecilia Johnson, to interview them at their home. Cecilia returned a second time to explore the city further, and she had some key Duluth experiences, eating smoked fish, throwing axes, and even watching a band rehearse underneath a brewery. She also talked to several community members, including engineer Eric Swanson and Duluth Mayor Emily Larson, about Lowe and the greater music scene. Unlike some of the other stories we've explored so far in this podcast, I have a very personal connection to Duluth. I grew up about 45 minutes south of the city in a small town, and I spent weekends as a kid making the trek to the twin ports of Duluth and the neighboring Superior, Wisconsin, for groceries, trips to the mall, walks along Canal Park, and fancy dinners out at Red Lobster. Because I moved to the Twin Cities when I was a teenager, it's always held this sort of mysterious and romantic place in my mind. It's a gray, industrial city, the bleakness of its shoreline gravel pits and factories, contrasted by these massive blue waves of Lake Superior. For years, I've had a working theory that it's because of the punishing climate and the gray landscape that the art that emanates from this place is so stark, earnest, and emotionally frank. When I listen to Lowe, I feel Duluth in my bones, but I've never been able to quite explain why. I wanted to talk more to Al and Mim about this, so Cecilia and I did, sitting at the kitchen table of their guest house. I wanted to ask you, too, about kind of the being in Duluth and just the atmosphere here, the weather, um, <laughs> to everything, to the politics of the city. Like, do you feel like Duluth has influenced your artistry in other ways that maybe are a little intangible? 
Yeah, which is kind of all we, it's all we've ever known. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, changing the seasons, phases of how your mind works sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, isolation, darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I think the lake, on a cosmic level, I think there's there's all these electrolytes out there and they're, there's waves, you know, it's it's fluctuating. There's a frequency to this big giant electrical body of water that I think resonates into the to the land. Um, the idea of being anywhere in town and being able to find some spot on the horizon where, mm-hmm. oh, there's the lake and there's where the horizon disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about kind of always having an empty, endless <laughs> thing in in your perception that sort of maybe shapes things a little bit. I don't know. There's the void. Oh. Yeah. 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 There's, there's the void. I know I can, I know I can trust that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Lowe's story began early. Al and Mim met in fourth grade. We grew up near, well, northern Minnesota, near Bemidji, up towards Red Lake Indian Reservation. Mm-hmm. On a farm. I moved there when I was nine from Utah, and Mim was in the same grade and class and all that, and we sort of knew each other and started dating a little bit in high school. I went off to freshman year of college in Utah, and she came to Duluth, and after about a year of that, we're like, no, we moved here, went to college. Been here ever since. Been ever since, stayed. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a moment when we started the band, and we were kind of realizing that we were going to start traveling around and making records and stuff it was kind of a thought of like well maybe we need to move to a bigger city but it just it just never seemed really obvious really needed necessarily mm-hmm. to you know we could leave from Duluth just as easy as <laughs> from Minneapolis Al and Mimi were married within a few years of moving to Duluth the school he went to for a year before returning to Minnesota was Brigham Young University both of them are practicing Mormons They were already musicians before Lowe began. Al had played guitar in a band called Zen Identity, while Mim had started drumming in sixth grade. When Al and Lowe's first bass player, John Nichols, decided to start a trio playing slow, quiet music, they recruited Mimi to round them out. There was some discussion at the beginning of stuff that we were into and stuff that we were kind of curious about and discussions of like, wow, I wonder what it'd be like if really took this concept to an extreme or wow this really simple drawn out music is kind of cool I wonder if we could you know bring that into sort of the pop or band element you know we we're, were looking at postmodern stuff to the Lamont Young I guess you could call Brian Eno kind of postmodern mm-hmm. some of the bands that we were inspired by you know like Spaceman 3 Joy Division The Cure Velvet Underground they all had a little bit of a minimalist end to their spectrum, maybe some quieter songs that we thought, well, what what if everything was like that? <laughs> you know? If you're hearing screams, come back, child, come back, my hands are dry. We really had no expectations of... Yeah. We yeah. thought we'd do one show. And, yeah, and and see how it see how it went. We kind of knew, you know, most people wouldn't really get it, or, be into it, and I guess that was that was fine for the you know. But at the time, there was a pretty great little scene happening in Duluth. It was 
you know, it was early nineties mm-hmm. and, and kind of the, the younger generation had kind of been hit by, you know, smells like teen spirit and some of this, this giant wave that kind of happened after that, that really kind of, there was a youth culture there for a while. It was really excited about new music and, you know, into weird stuff and into forming bands and into putting on shows. And it was really weird that this, the scene in Duluth was, it was mostly fueled by high school kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a college here and there's bars and there's certainly was a potential for something to happen here. But it was it was this young scene that, that we kind of found ourselves in early on that was the catalyst and, you know, an automatic crowd. And you get on a bill with a few other bands and there'll be 40, 50 people there and four or five of them really liked what we were doing. <laughs> and the rest kind of wandered <laughs> off. And so we knew we... We had something. We had something because <laughs> we liked it, and at least, at least, at least. a couple other people liked yeah. it. Where would you play at that point? There's a place called Recyclabel, which was an old Bell telephone, bell telephone utility yeah. building out in East Duluth that yeah. somebody had. Yeah, there's some hippies that were living in there and kind of using it as a unofficial public space, like the anarchist club met there and some other odds and ends and then they would let people do all ages shows there and I mean we didn't play a lot of local shows no we just played a couple I mean we played a couple and honestly like our third or fourth show was in New York the reason Lowe was playing in New York is that they'd sent their demo tape to Mark Kramer, the owner of label Shimmy Disc. His label had produced three albums by Galaxy 500, whose murmuring vocals and enveloping guitars had paved the way for what Lowe was doing. You'll notice that Kramer pronounces Duluth in his own way. I was in a little town in New Jersey, about 10 miles north of the George Washington Bridge. And... Uh, I would go down to New York City once a week to pick up a bag of mail, which uh, came to Shimmy Disc. We had a post office box there, and every single week I got a huge sack of of mail that had cassettes. Remember cassettes? And actually, there's a, a funny addition to the story. I found out from somebody who worked at the post office who actually knew my record company that any time they got more than a sack of mail, they would throw away the second sack. So the reason I always got exactly one sack of mail every week was because they would actually throw away. (laughs) There were people there who worked at that post office who had no integrity, and they would throw mail away if it just got to be too much for them. So we're double lucky here. (laughs) There was this one envelope that came in a plastic bag. In those days when mail was damaged, the post office would put it in a plastic bag and put a little piece of paper on it saying how the mail was damaged, but they were trying to deliver it to its proper address. And very often I would get mail that would have half the address on it, but somebody at the post office who saw the word shimmy disk knew what box it was, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how it came to me. It was an envelope that had literally been torn in half. And I could see that the postmark said Dulles, Minnesota. I listened to the music. There was nothing professional about the recording, but... The songs were beyond captivating. It's hard to describe what I was feeling. The the cassette had a napkin around it wrapped in a rubber band. And the rubber band was secure, though the envelope had been completely damaged. But it was just a napkin, 
around the cassette with a rubber band. And on the napkin, written in what looked like a red crayon, it said, we are low, we hope you like our music. That's all it said. It didn't say signed Al. It didn't have a phone number. And I thought, well, i got to find out who this is. I'll, uh, this could take forever, but I'm never going to give up. I'm going to do everything I can to find this band. And the first call that I made was to the college radio station in Dulles. And the guy picks up the phone, and right away he says, oh, yeah, I know those guys. They're from around here. You want me to give uh, – I know Al. He's, he runs the band. I'll give him – I'll give him your phone number if you want me to. So what I thought might take forever and an actual flight to Dulles to hunt them down in, in a fashion that would surely be documented in some dramatic recreation of the band 20 or 30 years on, uh, turned out to be a single phone call. They said they didn't have any money, and I said, you don't need any money. Come on out here. Let's make this record. I'm absolutely positive I can find you a record label. I felt that if I put them on shimmy disc, the chances were good that they would suffer the fate of 99% of the other bands on shimmy disc. They would be um, college radio darlings who would struggle to sell 1,000 or 2,000 records, and um, nothing would ever come of it. But I was very close friends with Elizabeth Brooks, who had just been hired to run Vernon Yard, which was Virgin Records' brand-new independent label. And she put the cassette of the record that I had made with them on her cassette player. We listened to three songs. She stood up, walked over to the machine, turned it off and said, has anybody else heard this? And I said, no. And she said, don't you dare play it for anybody else. I'm going to sign the stand. So the first time I saw Low was... Music critic Jessica Hopper was still in high school the first time she saw Low perform in the Twin Cities. I was in 10th grade. I saw them at the Speedboat Gallery in St. Paul. And I had heard about them initially through the show's headliner, which was Azalea Snail. I think in like a postcard or a letter that she had sent me inviting me to come down to the show. We had corresponded. I went to Speedboat and... I was the only person there that wasn't playing either in Low or Azalea Snail's band, aside from, you know, a handful of, I think, probably McAllister students upstairs, you know, drinking coffee and, and doing schoolwork. So I have a really distinct memory of sitting on the floor of the basement of Speedboat Gallery. They turned off the lights, I think, and Low had maybe one of those kind of rotating projector lights, like old school kind of 60s projector lights, or maybe it was like something as basic as like a, one of those like kind of hanging construction lights on the floor. But it's really just one super bright light on the floor. Even though I hadn't seen a ton of bands before, you know, I'd only been going to shows, you know, DIY or punk underground shows for maybe about a year at that point. I'd never seen a band play this quiet. You know, this wasn't an era of even, like, folky singer-songwriter folks within the underground. It was the era of loud rock bands. And so I was just sort of shocked that they were so quiet and that they stayed quiet. They, like, didn't turn into every other band that I saw all the time. And... They sang harmonies. They sang together. They sang, sang, which 
at that time, every band I saw was like somebody shrieking into a mic or trying to scream over, you know, the noise of it. And I'd also, I mean, it was really strange to me that a band was coming from Duluth. I mean, I'd never even heard of a band coming from Duluth. I'd heard of a few bands coming from Mankato. Mankato kind of had like a skate rock scene at that time. And, and you know, sometimes there would be bands from kind of like nearby in Wisconsin, or you'd, I'd seen bands from Madison probably. Low seemed like they'd just been like dropped from another planet. Low made two albums produced by Kramer, 1994's I Could Live in Hope and 1995's Long Division. Between releases, John Nichols left the band and Zach Sally came in on bass. He would hold it down until Matt Livingston joined in the mid-2000s, and Steve Garrington has rounded out the trio since 2008. After their time with Kramer, Lowe made their third album, The Curtain Hits the Cast, in 1996 with the Seattle producer Steve Fisk. For albums four and five, Secret Name and Things We Lost in the Fire, they traveled to Chicago to record with Steve Albini. The first session that I, that I did with them was at my old home studio, and I remember feeling like I, the session had not done them justice. And so I was very glad that they came back to electrical. The sessions we did here, I felt, were a lot more sympathetic just because the studio was better equipped and I had a better collection of microphones and I was more familiar with their music and so I, I didn't make any of the clumsy mistakes that I had made initially on our first sessions. I had been mostly working with raucous, noisy music and their music is much more peaceful and much more contemplative and I don't think I was equipped Technically, I don't think I had the skill set to do it justice yet. The critical thing about Lowe is that the, the two voices blend in a way that's unique to them. They're both fantastic singers with very charismatic vocal presence. And, you know, you could listen to either of them sing the phone book and it would be great, you know. If you drop the ball on the singing with that band, then the music falls apart. And the music is there sort of to create a suspended atmosphere that you can live in while you're listening to them singing. That atmosphere is, in my mind, best presented in a very naturalistic way. Beginning with Lowe's sixth album, the band began recording in their hometown, making 2002's Trust at Sacred Heart Music Center. While driving around Duluth with Al and Mim, we paused outside Sacred Heart, which first opened in 1896 as a cathedral. What can you tell us about Sacred Heart? Um, well, uh, Sacred Heart was, was the premier uh, Catholic church in downtown Duluth here for years and it was decommissioned it was taken over as a non-profit basically it turned it into kind of a space where it could do shows they would do concerts organ concerts mostly and then some weddings and kind of over the years it sort of slowly deteriorated because there's not a lot of funding to keep it keep it going so it was always scrambling to you know Keep the lights on, the heat on, etc. But um, I guess maybe 12, about 15 years ago, we 
couple other people that we knew were kind of we had pooled our resources and some gear that we had we, th we, we thought it would be a good idea to build a studio and someone had heard that it was possible to maybe figure something out there so we approached them and they gave us a space to put the gear and use the church as a studio. The church lady who played the organ bought it from the diocese for a dollar. Eric Swanson is Sacred Heart Music Center's longtime sound engineer. He spent nearly a whole morning telling Cecilia about the history of the building, playing her demos recorded at Sacred Heart, and even dusting off the church's Felgemacher organ, which was installed in 1898. He had a stroke in 2015, so his speech is more fragmentary than it used to be, but he's as nimble as ever at the soundboard. They were going to tear it down, and uh, fortunately, that didn't happen. A volunteer organization, the uh, Sacred Art Board, scraped and skimped by and now, um, now Sacred Heart is doing pretty well. Lowe recorded both Trust and their 2011 album, Come On, at Sacred Heart. Swanson engineered Come On. I was reading a little bit about your career, and, oh. uh, <laughs> and I, I saw that you'd worked at, you know, the Roxy and pretty, um, I guess, prestigious venues in L.A., mm -hmm. What are some similarities and differences of venues like the Roxy or other L.A. spots and this spot? Well, uh, Sacred Heart is harder to do the uh, because the six-second reverb. Here? Yes. So basically, light touch. Mm. <laughs> but studio... Perfect, you know, the piano, drums, everything perfect. But when people are recording, is there a separate room somewhere? All the rooms. Basically, the sanctuary reverb, uh, drum room, no reverb. Office or the foyer or the bathrooms or the balcony or under the balcony all different types of reverb. By the time they recorded Trust, Al and Mim had their first child, a daughter named Hollis, whom they'd been taking on the road with them. Soon, they asked their friend for some help. Yeah, the first traveling they did after Hollis was born, uh, Mim's sister went and went to Europe, and I think it was just all a little much for her because is. Exciting and romantic as it seems, it's really uh, grueling. <laughs> it's tons of driving and hotels. And this is Starfire, born Scott Lunt. He's a Duluthian DJ, musician, and quilter who also became Al and Mim's road nanny, touring with them in the early 2000s. Anyway, so she didn't like it, and I had told them half seriously, I guess kind of pretty seriously, that that I would do that. That'd be really cool. And then, so then they asked me and, uh, yeah, I just started going. And I remember the first time we went over and just started writing down all the tour dates and where we'd be, it just seemed like, wow. Well, you know, back in the day when we just had one, 
I mean, the reason it worked is because we didn't overthink it, and we and just we didn't know, and we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> we we knew that we this was our job, this was our career. What are we gonna do? Okay, we have to take the baby with. So we we got lucky. We had we got some really good nannies. You know, this really good friend of ours, Scott. He you know he just came with and made it work. We just we just did it. We have like this one really amazing picture when Hollis was just starting to walk and there are like four or five sets of hands, you know, ready to catch her. And that's, I mean, that's how we did it. Everybody just kind of helped and loved her as she was potty training in the van and all, wow. all this stuff. Yeah. Screaming. Yeah. What would she do while you were on stage? Well, we would have, she'd probably be back at the hotel. Sometimes she was backstage you know, we had this little, it was called a pack and play, wasn't it? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, portable, just a little portable, portable, yeah. Portable bed cage. Yeah. <laughs> Put, toddlers in Put her in the bed cage. <laughs> I have one of those. I mean, yeah. there, seriously, there would be some shows where we could hear her crying oh, wow. backstage. Yeah. I know, I feel terrible. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really hard to leave them. Mm-hmm. It was really sad, and we would end up having shorter tours you know. Lowe began staying home in Duluth more, but it was around that time when the music scene there began picking up speed. Starfire played a big part in this thanks to Random Radio, the 100-watt pirate radio station he ran in 1997 and 98. Random Radio, is like I had the name before I had the radio station. I thought that was a good name. It just, it was a thing for a while, and I had a good job, and I had extra money, and this paramedic that I worked with briefly he was studying to be a doctor anyway like I kept talking about it and he's like finally he brought in to work one day a little catalog with all the equipment and I'm just like okay we just ordered it because I already had CD players I had turntables I had you know I had all that stuff I didn't have a transmitter and then so we just ordered it and set it up and kind of let it go and there was a few of us who just did shows whenever we wanted and there was a lot of times we just wasn't on the air or sometimes we would just load up a 20-disc or a 100-disc changer. We did that experiment once where four of us each picked 25 CDs and then we just hit play. A threat of a $100,000 fine from the FCC put random radio to an end. But Starfire was ready to move on. In 1999, to celebrate his 31st birthday, Starfire helped put on the first homegrown festival, which took place in the mezzanine of downtown's North Shore Theater. The band Father Hennepin, then featuring Starfire on vocals and Alan Sparhawk on guitar, played the first of many homegrown sets. That same year, Lowe recorded a song that pays tribute to their friend, Starfire, for their album Secret Name. Well, I have this really morbid idea. Like, I'm probably going to be cremated, but I thought, wouldn't it be funny if they played Starfire and, like, as they, the song was sort of winding out, like, the coffin just sort of slammed shut at the end. <laughs> I'm a little drama queen, but... <laughs> or Al could just kick the cover closed when they were done. Oh, God. 
It's not just Starfire, Al, and Mim who have a knack for gallows humor. Dark comedy is baked into northern Minnesota culture, which we also encountered while climbing the city's Anger Tower. An older man standing near me began a conversation with a joke about suicide, and Al and Mim diffused the situation with some humor of their own. Soon enough, Alan and the man were chatting about taconite, a staple of Duluth's mining economy. If you don't feel comfortable listening to this exchange, you can skip ahead about 30 seconds. <laughs> if you're going to jump, give me your name. <laughs> so, so I can say, I know her. I knew her before, okay, she, yeah. before she ever jumped. Are you sure you want to admit to that, though? Maybe you're the cause. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't he stop her? <laughs> Why didn't he stop her? What did you, what did you do? <laughs> Duluth was still pretty cold in May of 2019, and the wind was biting at the top of the tower. Oh, that wind is cold. How can you stand that? Did you get a zipper on that jacket? I'm from Moose Lake. You're from Moose Lake. That means you're crazy. So Alan Mim took us to the top of Anger Tower, and it's breathtaking. You can see the entire city. You can see the lift bridge. You can see the aquarium and all of downtown and the radio towers. There's a golf course behind us. People are golfing. It's got to be about 40 degrees up, but the parking lot's full. And Al is a really fast runner. He made it up here in like two seconds. <laughs> it took us a little while to catch up with him. Yeah, I lost you for a second. I was like, <gasps> it's, like it's not about who's first. You know? <laughs> Located on the shore of Lake Superior and nicknamed the Zenith City, Duluth was home to the Anishinaabe, a group of native people that includes the Ojibwe. By the mid-1600s, French fur traders had made their way into the area in search of more fur. The city's name recognizes the French explorer Daniel Gracelone, Sieur, or Sir, Duluth. Duluth's first wave of European settlement came in the 1850s due to the discovery of copper ore. The city boomed in the 1860s and 70s as railroads began to connect the port town with the Mississippi River and further south, St. Paul. Meanwhile, the timber and mining industries flourished, and a huge influx of immigrants moved to Duluth. The population grew to almost 100,000 people by 1920. That number was projected to keep growing, but it never ended up getting much higher. Prohibition had gone into effect in 1919, cutting down the city's breweries until its repeal at the end of 1933. Other local industries took hard hits during the Great Depression. The steel crisis of the 70s and 80s helped contribute to a Duluth exodus, but the population has stabilized somewhat to about 86,000, making it Minnesota's fourth largest city. It's a port town, this kind of history of the port. It was like the second biggest uh, immigration stop-off point behind oh, Ellis Island. Yeah, that's right. So that's right. Sort of a, so there's weird, there's some funky history here. Yeah, the, that's interesting. The machinery and the port, the the harbor, mm-hmm. it's, it's large, and you know you see these large things. The you know the hand of humans kind of interacting with obvious these large structures of nature. Maybe the uh, human trafficking <laughs> element here might terrible. have something yeah. to do with it too. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not good. 
Yeah, there is a, I guess there is a real dark side to Duluth yeah, as well. Yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah, the isolation, the darkness, uh, there's a lot of suicide, there's a high amount of uh, domestic violence, uh, and strangely enough, yeah, human trafficking, which we've been only learning a little bit more about lately. Mm-hmm. Very, very dark. Mm-hmm. On our walking tour, Al stopped us at the corner of East 1st Street and North 2nd Avenue, and he pointed out a memorial to three young black men, Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee, who were lynched downtown in 1920. Along the top of the memorial, an Edmund Burke quote reads, An event has happened upon which it is difficult to speak and impossible to be silent. Yeah, we'll be Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial. Yeah. It's a memorial for a very unfortunate thing. And that was that there was a there was a lynching here in Duluth. There was kind of like a, a mob kind of busted into this into the uh, jail. And these guys were suspected of something that ultimately it turns out that they didn't do. As mobs do, uh, unfortunately, took their lives. So this this memorial is basically was put up kind of to memorialize it. Duluth is also the birthplace of Bob Dylan, who wrote about the lynching in this song, Desolation Row. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Duluth's current mayor, Emily Larson, spends a lot of time thinking about the past and present issues facing her city. But she also emphasized Duluth's status as a crucial international shipping port, a favorite vacation spot for families, and a place where locals get political. We are the highest voter turnout in the nation and definitely the highest in the state, and the state of Minnesota leads the nation. Uh, So we have a really strong history of democracy, and it's deep, and it's engaged, and like, I can't go anywhere without somebody talking with me about an issue, and I think that's awesome. But I would say the politics here are really personal. Uh, They're very rooted on people's daily lives. We are a history of working people and people who work really hard. Um, As a city, we have had a really important industrial past of blue-collar jobs, and then we also are this higher ed community and now a medical institution that spans the spectrum of of workforce. And and so I think you see that reflected. People are really active politically. They're very... um, effusive in their in their values and beliefs they share them it's really really cool to live in a city where people are activating all the time that activism also extends to the music scene my name is Brittany land i'm the new host of the current duluth local show and then i do a bunch of other stuff that other stuff includes promoting shows and running a popular twitter account about local music at ellipsis duluth So ellipsis, about 10 to 20 hours a week, depending on what I'm personally doing, working on project-wise, as well as what's happening in the community. Brittany went to college at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She makes the distinction between what she calls college Duluth, which is full of sports bars and cover bands, and real Duluth, or the parts of town that tourists rarely touch. 
Our producer, Cecilia Johnson, asked her the inevitable question. Why does she stay in Duluth? And I don't mean that to seem to sound like insulting or anything like that. Like the why do you stay here question. I ask people that about Minneapolis, St. Paul. Oh, no. Like, 100%. A lot. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not insulted by that at all. Everyone okay. asks me that. <laughs> really? Yeah. What else do people ask you when they find out that you're from here? How are winters? And I say awful. Yeah. I don't like them. I don't like the cold. And every winter I go, why do I live here? I don't actually have a car. People are like, how do you do that? And I'm like, why? walk everywhere, and my legs are very strong now. Musicians have remained rooted in the city, too, even as their careers have grown past the city limits. Yeah, from time to time, there'd be little booths, you know, trampled by turtles. I remember when turtles first started, and, you know, the scene scene was just so primed and ready for that, and it just really exploded, and it was a really positive aspect of the scene. And, you know, when a band does well and gets out of town and gets some notoriety, I think it's inspiring to others. You know, Charlie Parr and Turtles for sure have done that. Brittany Lind and Homegrown Festival Executive Director Melissa Latour talked about Parr this way, too. Charlie Parr is mm-hmm. huge in Australia. Yes. He was in a commercial, mm-hmm. and so he just, like, blew up in popularity. So he does an Australian tour almost every year. I sent many of his records to Australia. Yeah. And Spain, actually. Yeah. Spain loves Charlie Parr. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. I moved up there in 1998, and we started, Trample started in 2003. So I played a little bit of music and played in a few bands in Duluth before Trample started. Dave Simonette lives in the Twin Cities now, but he fondly recalls his formative years in Duluth. The first year I was there, I was in school, and I was living up in the dorms, and the school in that town is, is pretty removed. And I don't know if it's still like this, but it, at that time, it it felt like a completely separate town almost than like downtown where all the music was happening. But in a couple of years, when I was starting to kind of play in bands, um, and I got to be a little bit more immersed in it, uh, I'd say at that time it was thriving. I would say uh, it's it had a really cool like DIY punk rock vibe where all of the a lot of the bands are kind of like grungy and and uh, kind of raw rock and roll, which I thought was fantastic. There weren't a lot of what maybe we here in Minneapolis now would consider real venues. There were there were clubs that had bands, but a lot of these bands are bringing their own PA. Or maybe there's some ancient sound system hanging off the, you know, on the wall. That being said, I learned a lot in that way where I didn't get spoiled as a performer. You know, you really had to, like, figure it out yourself and learn how to do all of that stuff to put on a show. Our first show was at a place called Sir Benedict's Tavern, which is kind of like a sandwich shop bar thing. And, and you know, running our own sound, the venues have gotten a lot better kind of everywhere. It sounds better, but I still treasure that experience. We kind of go up and down with the venues some of them have really good qualities for one kind of show, but not others. We don't have a lot of huge shows in Duluth that are on like the local level. I love doing shows at the Rex. They have a great sound system, but it's so big that if you don't fill it up, which is like 200, 300 people, it looks empty, even if it's not. Mm-hmm. And then the herring no longer exists, but Blacklist is really awesome. It's a good medium size. Blush is amazing, but they're super small. They have like a 46-person capacity, so they're very limited. Our venue situation is just really spread out and odd. 
but one musical event in particular unites the city and brings in a good number of tourists as well. My name is Melissa Latour. I'm the executive director for the Homegrown Music Festival. Um, I'm also a commissioner on the Duluth Public Arts Commission, so I'm very much into the local music and art scene. My first Homegrown was the first Homegrown, 1999. Today, Homegrown showcases nearly 200 bands, all from Duluth, every spring. Not bad for a city of less than 100,000 people. It's gotten bigger. Uh, We started with two nights at the North Shore Theater, five bands each night. Uh, Now we are an eight-day event with a children's showcase included, poetry, fire spinning. And then the bands, we're up to 200 bands now versus the 10, and 40 venues versus one. We have a steering committee of 15. We have a board of five, a volunteer pool of about 250, you know, and then the spectators that come for the the crazy stuff. It's still a local music showcase. So when we're on our website and we check the email and everything else, we get a lot of correspondence from people that play all over the U.S. and even outside of the United States looking to perform at Homegrown. And when we explain it's a local music showcase where there should be some sort of tie to this area, they're shocked that we can carry a festival for that long with local music. I guess over the years, it's grown immensely. Nola Wick is a dance DJ who spent many years playing parties in Duluth before moving down to Minneapolis. And now it's basically, I think, the biggest party of the year in Duluth because everybody comes out for it. All the different venues in Duluth host it, and then you can bar hop, basically. And they also have a free trolley where they have music on the trolley. I love playing it because there's always a huge crowd of people. And I can never get that at any other point in time in Duluth. I could never get that many people to show up. And it's also kind of like a after-the-winter time for everybody to meet up again and reconnect after staying indoors all winter. It's so much, so much fun. Mayor Larson is reliably part of that crowd. And I have seen increasingly over the years the percentage of women participating as artists and homegrown has increased. There's a band called Superior Siren who I really love. I love who they are. I love what they're about. I have seen the representation of different cultures and voices be expressed in the programming of homegrown to be inclusive of indigenous people of color, and African heritage. I have seen the attendance of homegrown shift a lot in terms of age demographics and um, and who is participating and showing up. I have seen a much bolder and stronger embrace with and of GLBTQ community and non-binary gender community. And so, you know, the community, the arts community has evolved as our community has and has expanded that web of relationships. I have teenagers, and so I get to see through their perspective and experiences and their friends, what they are talking about and what seems neat to them, and and watching them engage in the arts in a new way and seeing young people move into that space and walk into homegrown venues, and it's, it's their festival too. In 2018 and 2019, Trample by Turtles headlined a show at Bayfront Park, drawing more than 10,000 people each year. We talked to Dave Simonette shortly before this year's event, and he was still buzzing about last year. We had been off the road for a couple years just to kind of be where we started playing and have our, our biggest show. 
happened there it, it was um, it was kind of emotional to be honest and it was a really special thing and I you know just to to feel the love coming from that town um, a place that we all love so much it, it felt right it felt great for all its recent visibility though Duluth remains a small town in the best possible way I was having a beer at the Red Herring with Dave Simonette and then Alan Sparhawk came up from the basement where there was a recording studio. And he goes, hey, I just finished mastering some tracks. Do you want to hear them? So Dave Simonette and I went down to the recording studio of the Red Herring. And we listened to the tracks that he had just finished. And that's the first time I ever heard ones and sixes. And I was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever had happen. And it's so cool. And who is going to believe me? And then, yeah, I was working at the Electric Fetus at the time. And then a couple months later, Ones and Sixes came out. And I was like, yeah, it's cool, guys. I know these songs. Now 25 years into their career, Lowe have continued to release new work at a steady pace, including the critically adored Drums and Guns, The Great Destroyer, and 2015's boundary-pushing Ones and Sixes. In addition to his work with Lowe, Alan has been playing in numerous side projects, including the raucous blues band The Black-Eyed Snakes, the anthemic rock group Retribution Gospel Choir, and the experimental Murder of Crows, a collaboration with the violinist Galen Lee. Both Al and Mim also remain committed to supporting the emerging artists in the Duluth scene. Remarkably, they also continue to reinvent their band and challenge their listeners. In 2013, their entire set in front of a sold-out crowd of 11,000 at the outdoor festival Rock the Garden, which The Current co-presents with the Walker Art Center, was one long, drawn-out, 28-minute performance of their song Do You Know How to Waltz, which Al punctuated with the simple phrase, Drone, not drones. And just last year, their 12th album, Double Negative, surprised listeners with its distorted, crackling effects, which Pitchfork said described 2018's pervasive dread like nothing else, and which The Guardian and other outlets called one of the best albums of the year. And then it's just been a very gradual, very gradual, gradual growth. Growth. Never been any like big hits that then we have to follow up or mm-hmm. like, wow, that record was really huge, and these last couple haven't been quite as. Mm-hmm. Quite so as... yeah, so with that and with just enough encouragement to keep us going, we've just. It just kind of makes sense. Yeah, and... it's just so we're we're very grateful that we've been able to do it. Yeah. As long as we have, it's, yeah, it's kind of miraculous, you know. The Current Rewind is produced by Cecilia Johnson. Michelangelo Matos is our writer. Marisa Gonzalez-Morseth is our research assistant. And Brett Baldwin is our managing producer. Our theme music is Winging It by Laserbeak from the album Luther. Michael DeMarc mastered this episode. 
Thanks to our guests, Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker from Lowe, Dave Simonette from Trampled by Turtles, Melissa Latour of the Homegrown Music Festival, Duluth Mayor Emily Larson, The Current's Brittany Lind, Sacred Heart Music Center's Eric Swanson, record producers Kramer and Steve Albini, writer Jessica Hopper, musician Starfire, and DJ Nola Wick. If you've been digging The Current Rewind, please go rate and review our podcast. We would really appreciate your support. Go to thecurrent.org slash rewind to find past episodes, transcripts, and bonus materials. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current.